Hello and welcome again to another edition of the Black Techies podcast, uh, where black culture and technology intersect. My name is Herbert Seward. Um, this is our first official episode as a part of the HBCU Digital Network. So we welcome our HBCU Digital Overlords to this show. Um, this is a pretty pretty special episode. Um, I think um, you know for anybody that's watched. Uh, been following the news or or media for the last you know couple of years um you know the law and and how it relates to black people has been you know really in the forefront of the news and this episode um you know has taken a real focus to that and as it relates to technology um i have with us you know our our host emeritus David Matthews, um, Dominic Bass, AKA Blackity Blackman. And um, Dominic, I'm gonna let you do the introduction to our esteemed guest. Fantastic. So I met this young lady uh, a, a few a few weeks ago at a at a black market event. Uh, black market sounds bad. It's just an, a, a vendor event in Nashville where uh, where black vendors go to sell their wares. Uh, where you know you everything you're there is black owned or at least black owned adjacent. Uh, and so I met her there. Uh, we got we we started talking. She asked me what I did, um, and so I told her that I. Did a podcast and she said i'd love to be on your podcast there's a, a an untapped cache of information about technology and the courtroom and how it affects black people and you know uh as the as the black techie that i am i said that would be great and so uh this young lady is also uh running for a da in nashville uh, district attorney for those of you who don't like acronyms uh so i'm going to let her uh primarily introduce herself um and tell you guys a little bit about her danielle Wow. Well, thank you so much, Dom, Dave, Herb. I'm just so glad to be here with you all uh, today and to share. It was, um, you know, as you're out campaigning, you meet so many fascinating people who are doing so many fascinating things. And so I didn't even, I, I'm, I'm learning of your podcast and I'm just so glad to be here uh, with you and have enjoyed spending a little time pre-show uh, getting to know you all. But by way of introduction, my name is P. Danielle Nellis. I am a candidate for district attorney here in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I am from Nashville. My family has been here for generations. I went away for school. I went to Spelman uh, for undergrad. So shout out to all of my HBCU family out there. I went to Boston University for law school. And I tell folks I uh, graduated on a Sunday and came home on a Monday because if you've ever been to Boston in the, in the winter, you know, it freezes. Uh, it is very, very cold. And so I was glad to be back in the uh, warmth of the Southern sun. And I am now running for district attorney. I have been a defense attorney. I've been a prosecutor and I have clerked for one of our criminal court judges here. So my career, my over decade career has been very balanced in its perspective. Um, the reason that I'm running is because unfortunately in 2017, uh, five of my Sunday school kids lost their lives to violent crime lights that were certainly snuffed out too soon. Uh, and I understand the need to make changes to our system, um, changes to the way we do criminal justice, the way we do public safety here in our city. Um, I've observed the changes already. And I think what we're going to talk about today is a bit of uh, tech and its uh, impact on the, the criminal justice system, what's changed in the past several years um, and things like that. But 
I'm excited about being here with you. I'm excited about the challenge of running for office. I'm excited about the potential for change here in Nashville. Uh, so just glad to be here. That's awesome. That's good stuff. And um, I think um, having you on the show um, and finding out more um, about you know the topic that we're really about to address, um, you know, it's needed. And I think um, a lot of times we really take for granted, you know, how technology um, and the law intersect. You know, particularly for Black folk. You know, we don't, you know, we don't think about it a whole lot, but, you know, in the same vein, um, you know, it, there isn't really much of a, of a social movement without the advent of technology at being at the forefront of the movement. Yeah, the also, real quick, Herb, you, you say we don't think about it a lot, and the pre-show got me thinking about that. Um, we don't think about it a lot, right? As us as techies, we don't think about it a lot because we are privileged in that we are savvy, uh, have access to, have resources to per, to procure. Uh, but I, I didn't think about it until Ms. Nellis was telling us about it. Um, when you have a, when, during the pandemic, when they were doing all those, uh, the trials were happening remotely and those kinds of things, when you have a, a, a need to access technology to you, to like for your life, right? For a, a court hearing or, or to schedule a court hearing or to pay a ticket or any of these things, right? I know that I can confidently, if the website is, 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 is functional, I can get online, I can dig my way around, you know, government websites are atrocious, but I can find my way to pay a ticket. Uh, but if you are somebody who is technology, fear, you're fearful of it, you don't have access to it, you got to borrow somebody's phone just to use the internet, uh, right? It might be that that it can be the difference between you, uh, you know, successfully, you know, paying this little fine, which you probably shouldn't have got in the first place. Well, maybe you should have, maybe you shouldn't have. Or, you know, having more fines added and then fines being uh, being uh you know coupled on and and then next thing you know your license is suspended then it's revoked and then you get stopped with a revoked license you get stopped you got to go to jail then you lose your job right and then you, you can't feed like these these things avalanche and it's all like because it, at the at the beginning of it you don't have easy or cheap access to broadband technology. You don't have uh, a good working smartphone or, or you know, with with Wi-Fi at home so you can pay for it. You know, so these are things that, we, like you said, we don't really think about the intersectionality of tech and legal or, or many other healthcare, right? Like we're not going to talk about healthcare that much today, but we don't think about how we're privileged and that we're comfortable with it, but so many of our brothers and sisters uh, that, that 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 don't have it, how it could possibly affect their lives, you know? It's interesting because this is uh, somewhat similar to, uh, I mean, it's not the legal system, but the same problem persists uh, back in 2020 when everyone had to go remote, right? You know, children all of a sudden had to uh, learn from home. Parents, uh, you know, had to work from home, but now, uh, maybe you don't have a computer or a laptop. Maybe you don't have the greatest Wi-Fi. Maybe you're still on dial-up. There are people still on that. Maybe you live in the country, right? You have satellite internet. So there, there, the whole access to, to technology thing, it, it pervades our society in, in different ways uh, with the pandemic, with learning, with going to work, with now, you know, the legal system. And so I, I'm, I'm really interested to kind of uh, learn from... Um, from Danielle and just kind of 
learn that side of the the issues that we face when it comes to technology or maybe even some advances that that we're making uh in that in that arena yeah dave that was um you know we are uh what are we two we're two years almost uh to the date when everything started shutting down uh, particularly here in nashville and so we um we had a tornado and then we four or five days later had our first confirmed case of COVID here in the city. And interestingly enough, um, I was a responsible or led the team who put together a statewide diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, conference with our bar associations here. And so that was the last live event we had for a very long time, for well, well over a year. Um, so it was just such a major shift for all of us. Um, thankfully, lawyers, for the most part, function from a place of privilege. And so we do have our computers. We do have access. Uh, like you said, we could do that. But oftentimes our clients, particularly those of us who are in the criminal law space, um, be it uh, you know defense attorneys or the state representing uh, victims and the community as a whole, uh, we are dealing with a population demographic that really does not necessarily have that kind of access. You know, some of the just immediate hiccups were, how do we make sure, uh, because courts are public, right? Uh, they're uh, open to the public, whoever wants to come observe, uh, are allowed to do so. But how do you do that when people can't come into court? So how public do you make Zooms? And then uh, if you have a hearing on Zoom or somebody appears on Zoom and it's recorded and then used against them in some way at some other point, you know, what are the uh, collateral issues? What are the consequences potentially of having a shift into this virtual space? Um, you know, how do we even schedule it? Had never done it before. You know, we have our dockets. They're set at a certain time every day. The names are put on the docket. Your, uh, your bond company or the state informs you that you have to show up in court. You've received a subpoena from the court. Well, how do we even schedule effectively with Zooms without having people have to sit on that Zoom all day. And are we even using Zoom, right? Are we using Zoom? Are we using a WebEx platform? Are we using, uh, what are we using? And then can we even use them? Because um, particularly in criminal law, you have a right to confrontation of your witnesses. And so is it considered confrontation if you appear on Zoom as opposed to appearing in person? So we had to do the research and the courts had to make decisions uh, in those spaces. And so there were so many hurdles in the courts um, that we had to overcome. I think we did a better job on the civil side of things because you don't have some of those uh, confrontation issues. They'd already been doing phone conferences in many ways before, um, before the pandemic hit. And so the adjustment was a little bit different. And then I think it, might, it depended on your jurisdiction, right? And so, you know, in Tennessee, we hadn't been using a lot of virtual options, but there were other courts and jurisdictions in other states that were a little further ahead in the implementation and use of uh, virtual options. And so uh, I think Texas went full um, virtual really quickly and even had jury trials do, uh, in the pandemic doing a full virtual trial. We did not do that here. Uh, our jury trials were just postponed and delayed. And of course, uh, the limitations of technology created backlogs in many ways. And so we're having to clear those backlogs. How do we get through these cases? People were held in custody. So I could go on and on and on about the issues of uh, uh, transitioning to a virtual space. 
Uh, but I will sum it up in this way for now. Um, our courts really, because they of the way they were constructed at their inception, were really not made to um, function in what we now understand to be a virtual space, right? To be a very useful virtual space. They just weren't made that way for, for many, many reasons, be it filing or confrontation or, or whatnot. And so the question for us, I think, moving forward is how do we make sure that we are effectively maintaining the rights of all those who come before and come in contact with the courts while still um, making sure that we're increasing access always, particularly in rural spaces. You know, Nashville, we don't really have to have that issue as much. Um, but when you have a, a county seat that covers three or three counties, a judicial seat that covers three or four counties, um, you know, making sure that there's equitable access um, and some of the other issues we're going to have to address in our court system overall. And I think technology may be the answer. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very astute observation uh, when it comes to that. One of the things that, you know, I think um, a lot of a, a lot of people that aren't necessarily immersed in technology you know, from a non-consumer perspective, um, takes the access to said technology for granted, particularly in situations where your rights may be being infringed on or where you have to rely on said technology to really tell the story when you can't. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, I one of the things when we are talking offline um, that really came to mind in terms of this question I wanted to ask you. Um, what was what has been one or multiple experiences that you may have had in the courtroom that you know there's been a direct correlation to where technology saved this person's life or saved this person's um, saved this person's uh, liberty and freedom? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. You know, what I, one of the best advances I think we've made here in Davidson County and maybe other people, Davidson County being our county here in Nashville or metropolitan government. I know we have people watching and listening from all other uh, places. I can give you the whole history, um, but of how our, uh, our city combined with our county government and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, um, you know, one of the best implementations I think we've seen over the past 10 years is the ability to do remote orders of protection. When you talk about saving lives, uh, having a victim of domestic violence be able to get out of the environment that they're in, get before a magistrate, get a protective order in place uh, without ever having to be in front of that person, at least, the, you know, at least the temporary and, and, and immediate um, ex parte order. Uh, so they can just simply go where they have support, do it electronically, virtually, um, state their side, get the ex parte, and then eventually they will have to go to court. But to have that immediate response is hugely important. Um, I think that's one of the situations. You know, I don't have any personal stories um, of how a, a client or a victim that I was working with on a case, you know, was saved because they, when you, when you ask the question, it made me think, um, I, I sent out an SOS via Morris co code or something. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I don't have some uh, specific example of that, but I am sure 
um, there are ways that people have been benefited. I did a lot of DV work while I was at the prosecutor's office here in Nashville. And, um, you know, safety planning is a huge part of that. If a woman or man is in a situation that they need to get out of, the most dangerous time for them is when they're leaving. And so we often and, and regularly encourage people to work out a safety plan. And that is the escape plan. How will we get to safety? How will you get to safety? What does that look like? And, um, you know, coming at it from a community perspective, I've served on several um, panels. And, and I, my question that I always ask is, what friend are you? Which friend are you in a DV situation? You know, are you the $20 friend? So, hey, I'm safety planning. I've got to get out. I'm not going to have access to my money. Do you have $20 you can give me that'll help me get to XYZ or in an XYZ situation, right? The other question we need to ask is, you know, what does that communication look like? Is there a safe word that you receive? Are you on notice? Are you on call as the friend on the outside when you get a certain text or a certain phrase that says, okay, this is too much or I'm in danger if a person can't call 911 because it would be too obvious? Um, you know, whatever, whatever it is, just uh, using the tools and the things that you have if you're in a domestic violence situation, but also if you're the friend on the outside, the associate on the outside, how are you supporting somebody that is in that situation to help them get to safety? And that may indeed involve whatever technology uh, is available, Do, even access to a telephone, right? And so if uh, somebody's on a shared phone plan in a house, how are they then going to be able to communicate later? Are we looking at having some temp phone? Um, and that seems very basic, right? You all are super high level. Uh, I see people that do technology at really high levels, but just the basic access to some things is, um, is really important when somebody's life uh, is in danger. Pastor, I have a, a question. Um, so when it comes to, so, so, you talked about how when the pandemic happened, right, and you everyone was trying to uh, struggle with what to do, you know, what do we use Zoom or do we use WebEx or do we use Teams, Google Hangouts, like what do we, you know, so there was all of this uh, quick, you know, having to shift all of this, but was there like a, I guess, a, a silver lining to all that? Was there anything mm -hmm. about going purely virtual that mm -hmm. actually helped the process or maybe uh, made a little, you know, made a few things a little bit easier to do as a result of it being virtual as opposed to having to come to the courthouse in person. I think there were some great benefits and it also showed us what we are able to do and should be implementing uh, going forward. So of course the obvious benefit is you are not coming in with a whole bunch of people and potentially being exposed to COVID, right? This pandemic is still very real. I know everybody's lifting their mask mandates and things like that, but um, having just had it a month ago, uh, it is still very real. I would not wish, wish it on anyone ever. Um, so I think preventing people from catching the virus or spreading the virus in the court space was awesome. Um, I also think it cut down on um, when scheduling was effective. If we could say, okay, your hearing's at 9, your hearing's at 10, uh, which some of the courts were able to do really effectively, particularly in our criminal courts, which are trial-level courts for us, um, you know, I think it was great in saving time and saving money. Uh, it let people keep their jobs. Uh, one of the issues we often see is it's hard for folks to come into court, particularly as a witness on a case. Uh, you risk losing your livelihood to come in and assist in the justice process. And so um, having people, you know, do the Zoom from wherever, wherever they are, access it from their car, 
on their phone, whatever it is, I think was a really wonderful benefit that we probably had not expected. Um, so I think, you know, silver lining wise, I think that was really, it kept us safe. Um, I don't think we would have been able to function if we had not, you know, moved to virtual platforms for a lot of our things. And, and it makes me also think of, I always go back to the most basic thing with courts. Um, you know, how would we have even done this virtual world if we had not had emails, right? And emails have been around for forever and ever and ever, but there's a time in the courts where emails didn't exist. Um, and, and in any business where emails didn't exist, um, we were able to transition to e-filing here. Uh, the feds have had e-filing for a long time, but at the state level, we in our county, we did not have e-filing in our criminal courts. We were able to transition to an e-filing system. So that was really beneficial. And it, I think it had been in the works before, but um, certainly accelerated the need because of the need caused by the pandemic. Um, you know, there's just some really basic things that the court had to speed up and catch up with that there was no uh, real incentive to do it before then, where COVID made that incentive. It, it made it absolutely necessary that we implement some technologies we had not previously used. And this is my last question, I promise. So, because, uh, no, because I'm just really, like I said, like during our pre-show, like I, I, I work in government, so I, I know how slow things can be. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious uh, how, at least at the, I guess, local government level, how was that achieved? So then when it came to like choosing or, you know, defining, all right, we're going to do this and this and this, who... Who made that decision? Was that like a, a mayoral thing? Was it a governor thing? Like who, uh, a county level thing? Like who who decided this is what we're going to do as far as technology when it came to the pandemic? My understanding is it came from our administrative office of the courts. Um, and so all of our Tennessee courts, of course, and you know, the structure of any courts, you, you go from the bottom up to the top and it's the Supreme Court. Uh, the Supremes, and uh, our Tennessee Supreme Court um, and the Administrative Office of Courts, which deals with all of the, of course, administration of our many courts here um, in the state, I believe made the decision as to the platform in partnership with um, the, the local court administrators. That was above my pay grade. Let's just put that out there. I did not get to decide uh, which platform we would use. Um, and so, you know, as soon as they made that decision, it started getting implemented. What I saw was the um, difference in implementation based on familiarity with some of these platforms and willingness to use it. Um, you know, when we talk about digital divides and things like that, um, we often talk about wealth disparities. Um, but I think it is necessary to consider some age disparities some educational disparities. Um, and, and level of comfort with using technology because when uh, there is discomfort or um, a lack of exposure for whatever reason, um, quite frankly, if I've been working in a space for 35, 40 years and never had to do any of the virtual stuff, it's probably very, very uncomfortable for me. Um, and that I think is a, uh, often the case with many um, of our court employees. And so getting people past that discomfort, but the ones who weren't uncomfortable with it. There was, I think, an ease in scheduling and getting things up and running. But the same with like the lawyers on the other side. So from the court perspective, you have all those issues, but you also have on the lawyer side of it, 
older lawyers who may not be familiar, um, and that's not saying all older lawyers are all younger lawyers, but just um, it's skewed to one side more than the other, the discomfort that people had with it. Thank God for assistance, uh, executive assistance and, and all those. Um, so I think we just really saw uh, some of those uh, causes of divide amplified in the implementation. Um, but also like, and we talked about this pretrial, and I don't know if you all experienced it at all, um, <laughs> appearance in court, like appearances was mm -hmm. a thing. So I'm sitting here on my computer. I have a ring light so you all can actually see my face. Um, you all are sitting there in, in your homes and you have your backgrounds and, and your screen works and your, your, your computer is set up, but like everybody doesn't have a computer. So they're on their phones and you're like, it's jiggling around and they're on a bad network or whatever the limitation is. And, um, you know, they don't have lighting, so we can't see them. And the way people appear in court, particularly for a hearing, has impact on credibility or the perceived credibility uh, of that person. So that's something we really had to kind of work through and walk through. And as we are corresponding with um, witnesses, just saying, hey, please make sure uh, you're, we can see, right? There's lighting. Make sure you're somewhere where your video works, um, things like that. Okay, so as we were talking about this, there are some things that have popped into my mind in terms of your perspective on certain events that you've observed um, nationally. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, as you know, as a you know, as a lawyer. Um, so I want to. I'm going to toss out a couple of a couple of things that we've seen in the news, and I want to get your first thoughts. Uh, the first thing that comes to your mind in terms of your professional opinion as a lawyer. Um, okay, so Freddie Gray. What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about what happened in Baltimore with Freddie? Ooh, <laughs> I have a lot of thoughts. Um, you know, Freddie Gray and all the names that we've had to call um, and we've had to call so many names and we have had um, in similar incidents here in Nashville as well. I know you all are over in that area. Um, so, you know, I, I think of incidents like that and I'm always grateful for video. Um, police involved incidents like that have, were really the impetus for Nashville's officers getting body cameras. Um, and really pushing that over the edge because there was some pushback to getting body cameras. I know in other jurisdictions, they've had them for years and years and years, um, but we have them and they've been able to uh, be effective and give uh, a full view to the public of things that have happened. Um, and we're trying to keep this technology related. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm always grateful for cell phone videos in any incident, um, videos in any incident as a, um, trial lawyer. One of the things that we combat all the time taking things to trial is the um, perception of jurors that every case gets solved in a law and order hour. And so, you know, that we watch the shows in the public, it, it, you know, I like Bull. It's like one of my favorite shows right now. And they're able to find everything immediately with all their sleuthing and everything. Um, but that's not how cases actually work. 
Uh, and if you don't have video, people tend to think that it's not real. So I think that's some real benefit to having um, access to those kinds of technologies. Um, you know, I just, the more we know, the better. The more we know, the better. One of the really interesting conversations that's happening right here in um, Nashville, which is not exactly related to the question you uh, asked, but it's about license plate readers and the use of that mm. technology as a tool. But of course, we're having that conversation in a um, uh, post-2020 awakening uh, that a lot of people experience when it comes to policing, criminal justice reform, and public safety. And so um, I've had persons responsible for making the, uh, making, um, the decision regarding them say to me, well, folks keep trying to bring in all of that outside stuff, that outside stuff being uh, the heads of people um, at the hands of officers, the national conversation and the local conversation regarding uh, policing, systemic injustices and things of the sort. Um, but they're saying, you know, we can't really, it, it's not about that. Well, if you're looking at a whole system, any tool you use, whatever the technology is, we have to be conscientious of its bias. Right. And it's not just a tool, right? Because there's policies surrounding that tool. So an implementation that may have a disparate impact. And so we have to really consider um, the use of whatever the tool is and make sure that technology is a benefit and not a detriment, um, and particularly detriment to certain demographics. Yeah, it's, uh, it's funny you bring that up. I, I mean, I live in Nashville or uh, right outside. Uh, and it, the, 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 the license plate reader has been a point of contention in all my, uh, all my woke groups, uh, because we know, right. Uh, side note, I'm sure there's not that many white people watching, um, white people stop asking us why we keep bringing race into things. It's cause it's in everything. We it's know everything. black people, black people, as soon as we saw this license plate reader, we said, mm, that's going to be some stuff right there. We know that what they're going to do, we know that it's going to be overutilized in the black community. And that, not that it won't be everywhere, but we know just by the definition of, of fines and monetary, you need to have extra money for you to pay off a fine. So we know that if you put some kind of universal uh, uh, thing in place that's going to catch everybody that drives by, that is, if they have a fine, then it's gonna send them another ticket or whatever. Whatever the thing is gonna be, then we know that that by definition that is going to cause more burden on people that are that are poor or, or that are that are less fortunate. And we know by definition of capitalism, by definition of the way that America has structured itself, that that is going to uh, disproportionately affect people of color. So, I uh, we know already we don't think this we know this right when the um when the when the um face recognition technology was deployed uh we knew pretty quickly that there's gonna be some stuff here right we know we don't know how we don't know how well i i can't tell you exactly how it's gonna manifest itself into a way that's going to put more black people in a position of of, of despair but i know it will and then we find out really quickly oh Y'all don't have no black people at the at the place where you teach these face recognitions how to uh, face recognition software how to read faces. So it doesn't read faces. It thinks that I'm T Pain. So you know it's it's um it's 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 scary. It's sad. I don't understand it. Um, and we don't. We need to learn uh, how to combat it, right? We need to learn who do we who do we put in office? Who do we like? We always think 
we, we everybody's talking about Joe Biden and what he is and is not doing. Uh, but we need to be out here beating feet for people like Danielle, uh, for people like Marcus Shute, for people. We need to be out here putting people who are going to have the community. And I'm not saying that just because she's black or he's black, that they have the black community best interests at heart. I'm saying that these particular people do, and we need to make sure that we are putting people in, not only black people, but we need to be making sure that we, we talk to our candidates whenever they, whenever it's available to talk to them. Hey, what are you going to do about this? Because the license plate reader is a thing in Nashville, but there's a thing in Maryland that's that's going to be up on the docket uh, this year, if not already. It's there's You talk about the legalization of cannabis. You talk about uh, just little things about uh, um, fine enforcement and, 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 and cr criminal justice reform and nonviolent and decriminalization of things that we know disproportionately affect Black people. I just get long-winded just saying we need to be more involved in local politics. It really does matter. Uh, and I, I really, you know, I, I hope that we going forward, uh, look at this and all these different ways that technology intersects with our uh, our lives and figure out a way for us. Because we can mobile technology as just as much as, as it can be a hindrance. Technology is also a reason that uh, we can use it to mobilize, right? Grassroots is the technology is the backbone of grassroots now, right? We don't have to go knocking door to door. Uh, and you can't in the in this pandemic world. You can't now. Nobody answering the door, right? We don't even answer the door for Postmates no more. So you can't go knocking door to door. You gotta hit these people in their virtual pockets. And so, like, let's we gotta get after. It. We gotta get mobilized. That poor Postmates driver, <laughs> just out there, just Wait, out there. But like, hey, thanks. You can't even say thanks. <laughs> right. Like, and, and they're running. If I were a Postmates driver, I would drop and run so fast. But, I'm throwing uh, it out the door like Paperboy. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I'm gonna be honest, man. I think the one thing about this platform that all of us that have been a part of it, you know, enjoys the most is the type of dialogue that we engage in, like we're engaged in right now. Um, me personally, you know, I've I've had one of those experiences where I've you know, done, you know, delivery gig economy where I've, you know, been run up on on by, you know, our, our, you know, our friends in blue doing a job. And um, yeah, and it turned into something that could have been really, really bad. Like as in, you know, your friendly neighborhood host might not have been here bad. <laughs> but it was one of those things where, you know, where the technology that we're talking about and access to it um, really prevented that sort of outcome. And um, the fact that we're having conversations like these, um, you know, it, it's, it's priceless, honestly. Um, one thing I want to put out to our audience um, in terms of, uh, you know, Ms. Nellis's campaign is, um, what do we have to do and what, you know, what can, you know, our audience do can, to get involved with your campaign? I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, and then, and then can we just put a pin really quickly? Cause I also want to talk about the beneficial use of technology and some things that we're not doing right now that I think we could actually do, but we're going to, we're going to go back to it. So to get involved, ladies and gentlemen, um, you all see my website scrolling across the bottom. It is Nellis4Nashville.com. Um, 
on there, there's an almost 20 page policy platform because I'm a nerd, um, but also because I think we have to have a clear vision on how to move our city forward. So I'd love for you all to check that out. You can also donate. Unlike our judicial candidates, I can ask you for money. Uh, and the reason that is so important is because uh, as much as we like to think that, um, and, and we have had grassroots campaigns, right? Grassroots campaigns are very effective. That is exactly what this is. This is a people powered, people first campaign. It is not about the funds raised, but it is so much easier to get the word out when people donate. And the reason that I'm running, you all have heard, uh, is because, of course, I lost my kids, uh, my Sunday school kids, but that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. I had lost my father-in-law to violent crime six months after I got married, lost my cousin um, to uh, violent crime. He was a member of the LGBT community in North Nashville, uh, which is a predominantly Black area. And it looked like a series of targeted um, homicides in that area. My family have also been, um, unfortunately, uh, victims as, as many, many Black people have of systemic injustice as it relates to police. My grandfather was beaten by police and wrongfully arrested in the back civil rights um, era. But then my father was harassed by officers when he was riding around the city in, on his motorcycle as a young person. Um, and so, you know, I, I understand that deeply how that impacts generations because I know their stories and I carry their stories. And when my brothers called me uh, one evening driving down um, a street that's close to us, less than a mile from home, but it was dark and got pulled over by officers or, or officers turned on their lights behind them. Um, they called their sister, their attorney's sister and said, come meet us at the bottom of the driveway. We, we need at least somebody to witness it. So like, I, I know those stories. Uh, deeply. And, um, you know, it's it's just so important to have somebody in position that carries those stories, uh, not just for the Black community, but for the entire community. Um, what I'm hoping to do here in Nashville, and, and this is also why I mentioned that policy platform, is make Nashville the modern model of prosecution in the South. You know, in the South, we have some really fascinating laws um, pertaining to gun access. And of course, nobody is trying to take away anybody's guns. But when we have a proliferation of guns on the street and laws are passed, even where law enforcement oppose those laws being passed, um, you know, we create a, a situation where everybody cannot be safe and, and, and not safe. We saw uh, last year we had 10 officer involved shootings. Almost all of those involved somebody having a gun uh, with them. And so just to be really conscientious of the set of laws and conditions that are here in the South that are unique, right? Our laws are distinct from um, like Philadelphia or Jersey or California, where you are hearing about some really progressive movements. Um, and we have unique culture here. We have a unique way of living and being, but we still want to be safe. That's what everybody wants right? That is the basic human need is that we want to be safe. So that is why I'm asking for people from everywhere to be involved. My Spellhouse family, uh, my BU family, just to help build this um, build this modern model of prosecution. So you can go to NellisforNashville.com. You can donate there. You can join the mailing list. For those who are local, you can sign up to volunteer. Uh, I have crossed state lines to go canvassing for people. So if you want to come down here and go canvass with us, uh, put it in the volunteer sign up, which is door knocking. Um, let us know. Phone banking. Uh, let us know that you want to be involved that way. Um, just there, that's how you can get involved. And it matters outside of Nashville, like I said, because because we are building a model, right? We're building a model. We don't have a progressive model anywhere in the South. And Nashville, because we've had this extraordinary growth, right? We have Oracle and Amazon and 
all of our big businesses moving in. Um, because of our growth, we are experiencing um, an influx of people, influx of resources. It is built on a background of national uh, having a nonprofit and social justice and community oriented um, group of people and organizations that have always poured in and been the, the, the net that has caught our city in times of tragedy. Um, when we've had tornadoes, when we've had floods, when we've had to suffer this pandemic for two years now, um, we've, we've had those people and organizations step in and we must do the same thing. We must bring all stakeholders to the table to address the needs, address the problems, identify the problems, identify the resources and align the resources to expand the options for accountability in our criminal justice system, expand the options for harm reduction, expand the options for healing for our community as a whole. And we can do it in a way that other people are not able to do it and truly be the model for other cities um, to build from. That's dope. Real, lots of really, really dope information. Um, as a side note, though, I got a question for you. Okay. What are your personal tech go tos? What are your What are your personal tech gadgets that you can't do without on a regular? I'm so low tech. I'm so low tech. Um, so I have my little iPhone eight still. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. Um, so I have my iPhone eight. I have my AirPods. We use those. Uh, my work computer is a Dell computer. My personal computer is a, I don't know, go Dell. Uh, my personal computer is the uh, Microsoft, the, the tablet with the keyboard. Surface? The Surface Pro? Mm -hmm, that one. Uh, and I really love a good touch screen. And so that works out really well for me. I have a little Bluetooth speaker. <clears throat> I'm solo tech. Y'all got headphones, microphones. I mean, I'm like, I I mean honestly... I mean, honestly, do you you don't really need more than that? I mean, to be perfectly honest with you, you got a computer, you got a phone, you got you got oh. AirPods, you got. I mean, wire Bluetooth. What else wire? do you need? Yeah. Do you really? I mean, what else do you really need? Yes, thank you for for yeah. making me feel okay in this. Space. No, honestly, I mean, listen, you have a modern phone. Like, it's not like you're you pulled out an iPhone three G. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Uh, now, you have a modern phone. You you have my daughter has an know. iPhone seven. Just that's I mean, listen, <laughs> your daughter don't pay no bills, does she? Horrible. No. Hey, listen, <laughs> that's why I said hey, iPhone seven. Hey, yeah, exactly. Listen, that's what that like. I, whenever I see parents and they got listen, my daughter, my daughter has an iPhone thirteen, but it's because it was free. Like it was legit free. I used to work in retail. Nope, I used to work in retail. It was like because of we were moving to to where we moved to uh, as a cell phone carrier i looked at all of the ins and outs yet yeah, at the end of the two years i'll have to pay 150 bucks if i want to keep it but that's the decision for two years from now and it was you know what i mean like it's legit i'm not paying nothing for it i'm gonna go ahead and get it for it, it doesn't make sense to put her in something older that would cost money just for the sake of it being older but i wish she would come up here and say i want a new anything because you know what your mama say back in the day you got mcdonald's money hey you got iphone 14 money no <laughs> but you know <laughs> it, you do it all right like and nobody could be nobody could be mad at that list of technology i mean you know okay. yeah you're all right Look, i can't switch to another iphone and i'm that person because it doesn't have the little uh the button on the bottom. Uh, oh, you know, no, you're 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 holding out. You you think it's never coming back? Well, no, I, I'm not. No, let me stop. Let me stop. The next iPhone, I believe, is gonna have an in-screen thumbprint reader. So maybe you can switch after that. Even though, I don't know what you're what you're holding off for. Face unlock is the best. Face unlock, it's oh, so no, good. Not, 
<laughs> I didn't even do that. Like I'm not. I I click the button. I put in a passcode. I did oh. not have my fingerprint or my face. Real. She's real. Why? <laughs> no, I'm just why does my phone need that? Why, why does it need that information about my life? Um, you know, I had a because Facebook because we're old. Actually, the fact that if you're on Facebook, you are old. Having taught teenagers, and they're like Miss Danielle, Facebook, who who does what? But anyways, so I had a Facebook memory come up, and when Apple, um, what what was uh, the. They were, they were trying to get this universal, the government was trying to get this universal unlock key for Apple mm-hmm. phones and Apple's like, no, we're not doing this. Which oh yeah, yeah, that whole FBI thing, I remember that. I think we have an episode about that. Issues. Right, I, was, I remember that the memory came up not too long mm-hmm. ago. And so, um, you know, I don't know. With the recent, how to put this nicely, um, you know, with the recent makeup of our Supreme Court, um, changing. <laughs> we love, we love our new appointee. That's great. But with the, the conservative, yes. Um, you know, there are some concerns. I think we all should, uh, keep somewhere in our mind about privacy, right. And about fourth amendment rights and things like that. And yes, we are all highly connected, but should there be automatic access to all of our personal data all the time? government entities particularly in a court setting right like should should the state just automatically be able to have all of your information i think that erodes you know the rights that have been guaranteed in the law right it it, it erodes our our justice process that we believe in so deeply that there is uh, you know some protection for individuals that there is some need for the court to oversee the subpoena process and make sure there is some legitimate reason uh, to have it and access it. Um, that there are protections for people that are beneficial to our community uh, as a whole. And so I think we just need to continue in conversation about that and be very aware uh, of any changes that are made in technology. But but technology is moving forward, right? Technology. Okay, but forward. all right, slight pushback though, right? Yeah. As a government employee, like, aren't you already in the database? <laughs> Right, like, and, and your fingerprints already where they need to be if somebody was looking for them. Oh yeah, number yeah, one. yeah. Oh but yeah, and, and have been fingerprinted many times. I've worked with kids. I've worked in schools. Like, my concern is not that my fingerprints are in a database, but that somehow my, and this might be completely illegitimate. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theory theorist <laughs> on here. I really do not. But like, I want, I want people's information to be accessed fair and square. I guess I don't want there to be a bunch of backdoor nonsense where folks get access to things and then they, um, you know, get tied to X, get tied to Y, get tied to Z, and then it's all this whole downhill situation. And I think I'll give you an example that's very um, top of the list right now. And I think it is in California, but there was a um, person who did a, um, uh, a, a rape kit, right? The person was raped or sexually assaulted. And so, the um, examination happened, the evidence of DNA was stored, and then that individual, because it was it was uploaded to federal databases, that individual is then moved from victim to a defendant when it matched for a crime, right? And that person never had any intention of it being, you know, put into some government database somewhere. And yes, it helped solve a crime on this end, 
but what chilling effect will it then have on victims when they come forward and report a rape or sexual assault? Not that anybody's thinking, oh yeah, down the line, I'm going to commit a crime, but like they could use this for anything. It could go, yeah, if, if that's, if, if that's, you know, no, what happened. And so I think we have to be very careful um, about those gray areas because we do want to protect victims on the front end, on the back end. We want to make sure that court uh, uh, cases can move through the criminal justice process effectively, but we just have to be very aware of whatever those um, collateral issues are or the consequences are and their chilling effect they have on the process that we want to work. Mm -hmm. I get it. I, so I not. Yeah. What you're saying is valid. It makes sense. I have completely uh, said I've said this on the show before uh, for the convenience that technology provides. Like they can literally like you can upload my brain into the mainframe. You can have it all <laughs> for, the, for, for the future. Like like fantasy world that I'm going to live in where I wake up and I talk to my home. If the trade-off is if I shoot somebody in the face, they're gonna catch me immediately because my my DNA is gonna immediately get, like if that's the trade-off, I just won't shoot nobody in the face. Like I just want to, you know what I mean? Don't. Please yeah. don't. Oh yeah, yeah. That's and, I mean, and, like, and I, I think that's most people, right? Like yeah, I'm we, not gonna go and do something bad or do something crazy. Um, but our system believes that folks are innocent until proven guilty, right? That is the that is allegedly. the base premise. Yeah, we really don't need to remember, bro. Don't shoot nobody in the face. Don't shoot, right? Don't shoot nobody. Let's dig in there. Horrible idea. But like that is the premise of our criminal justice system, and it, it and we've seen it eroded, right? <laughs> when we hold people pre-trial and don't let them out for years, mm -hmm. right? For one way, for one reason or the other, because they can't. Khalif Browder would would argue with you that that is not the that's not the case that we're not innocent to prove. I'm I'm using my language very intentionally i understand uh, <laughs> that is the premise upon which our uh, criminal justice system uh was founded um you know but if that is going to be the premise we have to work to make sure that it's not eroded any further than it already has been um and so that is that is what we're going to stick with for that, today's conversation. that brings me to another thing that and, and I, i'm always curious to people who are like you always hear uh people say something like if you don't like the system, get in the system and change it. So as somebody, and maybe you don't know because maybe you haven't been in the system deep enough or with enough power like a district attorney, uh, but is that a real, like, I, or maybe I know you have to believe that it's real because you're running for the office and I know you want to institute change, but like, I wonder how you balance I, I, maybe you can't even answer this, but this is me thinking out loud. I wonder how you balance the like the cynicism that comes with growing up black in this country and seeing all the atrocities that are being committed on a regular basis, uh, and just the the I, how do you balance that with thinking I it'll be I can do it I, I can like yeah yeah this like you know it. what I mean yeah it's actually something that I've wrestled with um, you know Audrey Lord tells us you cannot dismantle the master's house with the master's tools. Right. And so on the other side of that, there's a school of thought that says you can't fix it from the inside. Um, I've never thought of myself as an insider. Indeed, I'm the outsider candidate right now. I'm the not status quo candidate. Uh, there's never been a person of color that's run for this position before. There's never been a person of color or a woman elected to this position before. Um, there is normally candidates are running from some uh, family wealth or some personal wealth. Uh, I am your working uh working person right i do have privilege 
I will not negate that, right? I do not live in a place of poverty. I have a law degree. I'm able to work, but I've worked in public service, um, not coming from vast personal wealth. And so uh, I am your outsider candidate in a lot of ways. And, you know, I think if you do not have that perspective at the table, if you do not sit at the table, if you don't convene the table, then you're going to have somebody spinning a narrative about you and your experience and your community that is quite frankly inaccurate uh, and not representative of the community that you are supposed to serve. You know, one of my, I have four principles in my policy book. They are prevention, transparency, community engagement, and restoration. The reason community engagement is so important for me is because we have got to hear from, value, validate, include the voices of those who are most impacted by this criminal justice system. And for too long, it has been um, either somebody who completely discredits that or somebody who cannot understand it and its nuances. Um, and so I think it's really important to have those voices and invite those voices to the table. You know, un unlike others who are in this race, I've consistently said, you know, we've got to invite folks to the table uh, to have this conversation and make the change that we need to make. Um, and I'm, and because of my lived experience, I'm able to do that. And so, yeah, I think it's important to be in the place, right? I think it's important to be in the position. I think it's important to do it from the inside. The office of the district attorney is the most powerful position in our criminal justice system. Every case that happens in Davidson County that results in a suspect being determined comes through mm -hmm. that office. The judges have some of the cases, right? The um, defense, uh, the public defender has some of the cases, but every case that the state of Tennessee brings forth runs through that office. And that person has to have a perspective that is not the status quo perspective, is not uh, continuing the legacy upon which that office was built. Like I told y'all, Andrew Jackson was our first uh, district attorney until three district attorneys ago, RDAs either owned slaves or actively pursued Jim Crow laws because they were on the books, right? Whether they, you know, agreed or not, they were on mm -hmm. the books, right? Mm -hmm. And we know how the system has just continued as a snowball into what it is now and how it's impacting our community still. And so somebody has got to be at the table that's ready to write that ship. Somebody's got to be at the table with a plan. Somebody's got to be at the table with the lived experience. Somebody's got to be at the table with the professional experience that can write this ship and change the direction. And it's for the sake of this city. I love this city, right? This is my home. We have been here for generations. And so my love for this city and the people of this city as a whole really motivates me to make the change. Our city is at such a critical juncture. We have seen this extraordinary growth that our growth could be our own downfall. Criminal justice in its current form could become the weak link of our growing city. And if we don't make the necessary changes, we will suffer for it because people want to be safe, right? All people want to be safe in their communities, no matter their demographic or their background, until we can make it safe, we will suffer. Um, and that is what is on the ballot right now. People have got to make that decision. Well, I I'll say before we, uh, before we close out, I will say that I uh, uh, applaud you for your, for your efforts and that uh, as someone who's also from the South, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. So I, in fact, uh, I think all of us are from the South, right? Um, I, I think. Well, technically, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm a native, native Washington. <laughs> so, well, okay. So, like, like Washington, D.C. or Washington State? 
Washington, D.C. Oh, okay. Just being well, clear. <laughs> but uh, so I, it's, it's, I think you mentioned earlier that the the South is different, right? It's, it's, it's different. Yeah. There are things that are still culturally relevant in the South, and you feel it. I've seen it in person. And so, it, yeah. But uh, I, I applaud your efforts, and uh, I wish you well. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's been it's been an absolute blast having you on as a guest, um, and you know, hopefully, our our resident lawyer and and judge to be Marcus Shute, you know, who is also a black techie, you know, core, part of our core membership. Um, if we can get him back on. We'd be more than we would love to have you back. Um, oh, I'd love to be here. Me and a. Uh... Me and Mr. Shoot have uh, known each other since middle school. And so it would be great to sit down and chat with him, uh, understand his perspective on things. Uh, he's running, obviously, for judge. And running for judge, you don't get to do as much of the policy discussion that we do as we're running for district attorney and how we need to change and impact policy. His is more about fairness and access. Um, but as Nashvillians, uh, as people who have been impacted uh, by our criminal justice system on, on multiple sides, um, I think we both share a really interesting perspective. Okay. Um, before we close, I just want to give some program notes um, for, you know, for our viewer and listenership out there. Uh, this week uh, coming up, we got some pretty big stuff coming from Apple. Um, there's going to be, you know, an Apple drop that's going to be, you know, for you got for you Apple stands out there. And I know we got a couple of them on the, on the, on the feed right now. Um, <laughs> there's going to be you know some really really pertinent information that's going to be dropped that we're going to be covering um in the next podcast or two um also big shout out to the hbcu digital network um like i said our new overlords uh are providing us with a space to take this podcast to a wider wider audience so um shout out uh to adam and and, and his bosses and, and his you know, infrastructure for HBCU Digital. Um, we look forward to our, you know, our new partnership and to be uh, putting out as much content as we possibly can for that platform. Um, again, I, I can't reiterate this enough for the folks that have been riding with us since day one. Um, thank you. Thank you for you know, sticking with us when, when content was slim you know, sticking with us through the rotational changes of, of, of our lineup in terms of the techies, um, we are endeavoring to bring you, you know, as, as much quality content as we possibly can. Um, you know, also for our audience out there, if you have show suggestions, hit us up. We can be found on Twitter. We can be found on Twitch. We can be found on Facebook. We also have a YouTube channel in addition to our new platform at HBCU Digital. So do not hesitate to reach out to us in terms of show topics, in terms of things that you want us to talk about, um, even as far as product reviews and, the, and things of that nature, uh, do not hesitate to reach out to us. Um, in closing, I'm gonna pass it to my boy Dom uh, to do his customary closing. So have at it, Fram. Uh, 
first of all, thank you, Danielle, for joining us again. Um, we're super happy to have you. We don't have very many guests, although we'll probably uh, work towards uh, doing that. You added a lot of value to this show today. Um, Hopefully what she talked about in addition to what I talk about every week when I close, uh, hopefully it helps you guys realize the, the, the emphasis and the importance of local politics. Um, and we are not a political podcast, allegedly. Uh, but everybody go figure out who's on the ballot this year. This is one of the most important midterms of all time. Um, it is going to be very important, especially if you live in one of those places where it matters, right? It doesn't matter everywhere. Uh, but um please go research your candidates, um, get out and vote. Uh, it really does matter. Uh, this week, try to do something good for somebody. Everybody try to do something good. Be the be better today than you were yesterday. And as always, um, we are, uh, I used to say that we're, we're, we're so close to this dude not being our president. And I'm so scared now that um, I'm about to have to start saying that again. So guys, please, let's, let's do, um, everything that we can to make sure that this dude don't be our president again because I don't know if I got another four in me. Bruh. Okay? <laughs> Bruh. Love you. Mean it. Yeah, needless to say. Yeah. Also, we also we might have to start yelling Katanji out instead of Wakanda forever. That just feels like a, she just feels like the 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 queen mother's little sister or something, don't it? Don't that just sound like the queen mother's little sister? Katanji. Well, we can we can definitely alter our signature departure um, call out <laughs> before we roll out. <laughs> Katanji forever. Katanji. Hey. Forever. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, until the next time, catch us on HBCU Digital Network. Peace out.